As the world emerges from the shadows of a pandemic, we're all wondering what's next. Has our experience in lockdown altered the future we expected, or has it simply accelerated ongoing change? What's in store for us over the next few years? Join me, Susie Golding, and me, Andrew Clark, in Singapore every week as we ask leaders across Asia working in marketing, communications, and lifestyle one simple question. What's, What's next? next? Hi, guys. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Um, as we said last week, we've got a, a bumper crop of new podcasts for you coming out over the next few weeks. And who have we got today, Andrew? We have my mate, Unmish Patasarati. And now, when we uh, teased the listeners last week with who um, was coming on this week, you described Unmish as a change architect. What the fuck is a change architect? <laughs> or did you just make it up? Well, you know, I did kind of make it up. After we edited this episode, I felt as though I had really understood exactly what Unmish did because I didn't quite understand completely what he did. He's quite hard to pin down, isn't he? Yeah, he's quite hard to pin down. I think ultimately when I wanted to distill it down, I came up with this. I said, because I was WhatsApping him and I said, right, okay, I finished editing this thing. I know what you do. And he said, go on then, tell me what I do. And I, I said, you're a change architect at the crossroads where content, media and tech meet innovation. Oh. Wow. I think he'll probably put that in his creds, Andrew. Well, then he wrote back, right? And then he said, a catalyst or change agent. I've heard change agent before. I quite like the spin that you've put on it, though. Yeah, I think I think less of being an agent, more of being an architect, because he has mm. a global organisation around him of people very similar to Jim James, you know, specialists, yeah. experts that he knows around the world, so that he brings in to help out on these projects that he has. So a bit like an architect in terms of designing and then being present all the way through the building and sort of steering and leading um, and helping the client through it. Yeah. But yeah, I think enough of us blethering on because what he has to talk about is extremely interesting. Should we just get into it? Let's crack on. Unmish, I want to ask, so it, it feels to me like the last couple of years, everyone's talking about this mythical content. When you talk about content, what do you mean? Because obviously it's a big word, right? It can mean lots of different things. Sure. I think, I think most, most people who talk about content are seeking attention of, of the audience and they see content as a means of securing that attention. If you look at the last decade and the 50 years before that, you basically had a scarcity of devices to access content. You had a scarcity of sources of content because it was television, free-to-air, or even pay TV later. Because the content access was stationary, there was only certain windows in the day when the content could be accessed. In the last 10 years, everything has changed 180. The supply of content is multifarious and 24-7. Two, I think that the devices required have A, proliferated in the household or in the office, but they've also gone mobile. And that's led to a degree of ubiquitousness. Uh, and thirdly, connectivity has improved. And that's led to a need to find a means to get that you know, magical mobile moment. Just as publishers and companies and brands and organizations and performers or athletes have got good at publishing, the consumers have become far more discerning. 
and technology allows them to become even more discerning. So in many ways, it's become easier to speak, but it's become even harder to be heard. And who are the organizations that you're working with, Unmish, that want to be heard? What type of people are you working with? What type of companies are you working with? So there are broadly three buckets. On the one hand, the intellectual property owners of you know, movie catalogs, games publishers, uh, and sports federations. So it's what? It's kind of sports, gaming, and media. Is that right? Sector-wise, yes. Sport, gaming, and media with a very, very heavy focus in media technology. Yeah. So that, that's one sort of bucket. Uh, the second bucket is uh, what I broadly, broadly call uh, a digital technology company. So digital content is one. And then the digital technology, which is yeah. further split into two different parts. One is enterprise technology. And on the other side is more the sort of next generation, early stage, you know, either a startup, but more likely a small and medium enterprise, you know, 10 to 30 people turning over some revenue, but yet using that technology to solve problems for clients and partners in the sport, gaming, and media space. And then the third area that we are seeing is what I'd broadly call parastatal. So universities, schools, um, government departments, which are involved in health, which are involved in sport, which are involved in youth and entertainment, they're increasingly trying to work out what their policy needs to be and how do you actually package that? Because I think COVID has brought home the fact that the old analog ways are way past their sell-by date. So it's really, you know, entertainment brands, it's technology companies and the sort of parastatal, or rather largely, I would say, the public sphere. Okay, I get it that companies like Microsoft, they're in the media space, obviously. They're in the gaming space, obviously. But why should a company like Microsoft in this kind of post-COVID world that you're describing, why should they be interested in sport? I think the biggest change in the Microsoft business has been the, the provision of cloud-based infrastructure. And that's led to a large, them entering into new areas or providing new services in existing areas. Mm. And in sport, both of those have happened. They've entered sport and their, their suite of services have expanded. Uh, sport actually tends to have very high peaks of audience. It's the last sort of bastion of, of appointment to watch content. Uh, and that leads to you know, issues like concurrency, which is basically a very complex way of saying a lot of people are watching one piece of content at the same time. And so you know, if you put the concurrency of sports consumption, if you put the, the, the video central, the central video being the central currency of that exchange. And if you put, put the need for, for for the sporting economy to actually know who the fan is, it's, it's large reams of data. Mm. So that's very much on the enterprise side. And then on the, on the sort of startup innovation, you know, young business side is, you know, these technologies are maturing, as I mentioned, you know, are the computer vision, which basically is face recognition for the sake of argument, or blockchain, which actually allows for and looks after authentication and fraud, mm -hmm. uh, which is very important in stuff like betting or ticketing uh, or merchandise sales. Mm -hmm. A lot of young businesses are innovating tremendously and very, very fast. Uh, as most things happen, it's sort of the sports tech space has very much gone west to east, mm -hmm. uh, like video before it, uh, like gaming before it. But I think the only big difference is for the first time, there's an east to west push as well with a lot of um, a lot of Chinese innovation and Korean innovation, 
and Aussie innovation sort of going from east to west as well. What I'm hearing from you is there's this huge opportunity out there for innovation, a massive scope. What I'm keen on doing is how do you do it? I mean, the companies that you work with, how do you work with them? Most of the work is referred and we sort of work in a very modular manner. And what I mean by that is that we would typically spend six weeks uh, in a deep diagnostic. And then thereafter, we sort of say, look, this is what we found. These are the recommendations we've got. And, you know, if you'd like us to move forward, then we typically would do a 100-day plan, which is a very action-oriented, output-oriented piece of work, which uh, was typically be about three months. And you can get, you know, we recommend client-side staff become part of a, of a team, which often helps. And that 90% of the time, that's what happens. So that's the 100-day plan. You sort of walk the corridors, have the coffees, all that kind of stuff. And on the back of that, you sort of have a uh, a first cut or a beta, which basically says, this is what needs to happen. Mm. Mm. And this is how we are going to make it happen. Uh, and this is how we're going to measure whether we are on course to making it happen or we need to calibrate how we're doing something, which typically becomes a 12-month engagement because that's a change program. Working with like maybe institutionalized companies, they, they work pretty slowly, right? Yes and no, um, in the sense that there's always typically you classify staff as, as three people, right? Hostile, you know, passive inhibitor or passive helper and active explicit helper. You know, you, you break them down to three different buckets. And if you just have that lens going to an organization, you actually know, you know, where where not to go and where to go twice. In terms of group dynamics, right? I don't know if you've heard of forming, storming, norming, performing. Oh, oh no, no. I never heard of that. So it's it's fascinating. When you bring teams together, right? Um, and this happens in cross-functional teams or people from the outside or a mix of outside and inside, they get together and it happens all the time. Um, everybody gets together, hunky-dory, honeymoon period, and then something happens. Either cliques get formed or lack of dissonance happens, passive-aggressive behavior happens. That's the storming phase after the forming phase. Then everything comes to a crescendo more often than not, or it gets resolved probably 30% of the time without having to sort of you know, boil over. And that's norming. You're creating norms of why is everybody here? Why are we here? Just to be clear. Yeah. And that's when people exit, they get replaced, they get added on, or they get a massive, massive dose of legitimacy. And then on the back of that, you perform. So it's really sort of, you know, forming, storming, norming, performing. And that, that's, that's I've, I mean, I've sort of led sports teams for a long time, cricket teams for a long time. Uh, and that, that's the case everywhere. You know, this point is really important because you're thinking very practically and pragmatically or you're responding in a way that companies need to respond to the market at the moment. And of course, like the makeup of our companies have to change. I mean, we were speaking with uh, Jim James the other day who was telling mm -hmm. us that now his company is a zero employees company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's fascinating to hear at the same time that you're working in that mm. kind of way as well. And your business is very much a global one, like you're saying, and, and the way that you've structured it is around this idea of collective. So it's bringing together um, people who have the necessary skills and experience sort of at any one time um, to form almost like virtual teams to help a client out on a particular, particular challenge or issue. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's been very selfishly motivated. You know, we like Singapore, uh, both personally and professionally. Uh, it's a great location to service geographies where I believe I and our cohort can impact. Yeah. Point number two, uh, a lot of the motivation of, you know, to your words, sort of becoming quote unquote global, uh, which is, uh, you know, the antithesis of being Singapore only, 
uh, came from clients. They were saying, look, who do you have in Europe? Who do you have in Japan? Who do you have in Australia? Who do you have in India? Yeah. Fortunately, I've been able to find people who uh, would would consider A, an association professionally with, with myself, B, are open to the idea of it being a non-exclusive um, a non-exclusive relationship um, and, and see, would see the, the economic benefit to them. The one thing I would say is that it has got to be transparent. Yes. Right. And it's got to be consistent. Uh, and it's got to be fair. What you're explaining here as well is, is the fact that your network and this network that, that, that clearly you're building all of the time is extremely important and you live and die on the projects that you're doing because of the network that you offer up to the clients that you partner with. What is the secret to that network? What do you do to keep that network up to date and, and to keep growing it? So I think consistent behavior and being honest goes a long way. You know, life is short, people have long memories and the world is small. So, you know, you can get found out very, very quickly. But in terms of the actual means of doing it, uh, I'm, uh, I, the only social media network that I'm actually active on is, is LinkedIn. I have been over the last, I was a very early adopter. I began in 2006. I really found it very, very useful. And, and how many followers do you have on Mish? Because it's pretty impressive, mate. Coming up to, it's north, north of 20,000. Whoa! Oh my goodness me. It was about 2,500 when I began five years ago. That's unbelievable. As it, as it became, you know, like a virtual cycle, I found that I was interacting with people in different, in different spheres. And I used to attend lots of industry events. I still do most of them online now, unfortunately. And uh, from 2016 onwards, I stopped taking business cards. I just sort of would reach them out on LinkedIn and connect there. That's amazing. Mm. Um, and, and, and people also began doing that at the same time, which was great. And something which I enjoy, which often can be very tiring, is, you know, when a client calls you at 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon and they haven't called you in two weeks, they think it's 10 o'clock on a Monday morning and you're fresh as a daisy. <laughs> yeah. So you've got to have your A game all the time. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I And I think it, for a lot of agencies, for a lot of consultancies it's easy to slip in to a situation where uh, there is an expectation that you're just available all the time which is you know not great um, I think it is important to and 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 in my experience if you say to a client like you've just said Unmish if you're like you know I need a little bit more time to to work on that or I want to give that a bit more thought can I come back to you you know tomorrow instead of end of today I've never had a client say well no you can't you know I've always found clients pretty pretty reasonable yeah there, there are two sides to that one is i think you know you're good and you're consistent in your work and and you know you don't make it a habit every time on every project mm. and therefore it's an exception and the rule so i think it's more about credibility and consistency in past performance yes um the other thing is about charge outs you go to a dock mm. they'll come home but they'll charge you 500 bucks yeah if i spend an extra day i don't get paid more no exactly so when you do get to switch off Admish, so when you're not responding to your many thousands of LinkedIn followers, <laughs> what have you been listening, watching and reading over the last few months? Oh, it's been it's been great fun uh, because I have never had six months when I've not been on a plane ever in my working life. <laughs> really gone to cycling a lot. Um, and that's lent itself to my losing myself into podcasts. I'm a cricket tragic, so and the cricket season's kicked off in the UK, so Test Match Special definitely has worked, uh, but much more, less the live commentaries, more the sort of the chat and the banter. Yeah. Uh, and also, uh, there's, there's an English cricketer called Mark Nicholas, who uh, never played for England, uh, who was supposed to be somebody who could have been a great captain of England, and he's just begun a podcast series called Rain Delay, and... 
it's it reminds me of Parkinson or Frost or something where you know the, the, there is a piece about sport and cricket, but he also gets in different people from the Bank of England to to you know cinema to people in in the NHS oh. uh, who have a love for the game. Great watching has been great fun. As a self-confessed cricket tragic, I began by watching the Test, which is a series. Of, it was a documentary series on Amazon Prime, which is basically. They invested half a dozen cameras to follow the Aussie team. They were caught in a, got, got in a massive controversy on a tour to South Africa where they got caught, caught in camera. Oh, I remember that. Ball. Yeah. That was a huge, huge yeah. piece. The second thing which we watched in June was Succession. Oh, love it. Yeah, there's been a lot love of it. chatter about that. I haven't seen Stunning. it yet. Stunning. Amazing. Yeah. Having sort of worked for News Corp and the media sector for a while, it was it was compelling, compelling watch. Uh, it was a compelling watch. So that was that was the second thing. And then... More recently, and you can tell I'm tired and fatigued, I watched something called Indian Matchmaking. Oh, Netflix, I've read quite a bit about that. Which is which has gone phenomenal, phenomenal entertainment. Uh, it's what I call sort of going from cringe, from binge worthy to cringe worthy. <laughs> it's an interesting take. I was really taken by how they have commissioned mm. the programming. Yeah. So they've sort of taken the Indian diaspora across India and the US. It was let's just say it was light reading. Rather than uh, you know, war and peace. Great. <laughs> Reading has been great fun. I finished a book about a month ago called Chaos Monkeys uh, by Antonio Garcia Martinez. Chaos Monkeys effectively is the Silicon Valley dot com startup equivalent of that. Yeah. Somebody who sort of built and sold a business to Twitter, then went to Facebook, and then mm. eventually exited and has has written this book. Is you know, very very interesting. And then and then from there, sort of. He mentions uh, talking about Paul Graham, who began something called Y Combinator, which is an accelerator. You have an yes. idea, and they sort of put you through the yes the, the, mm. the meat factory. And then uh, Paul Graham's wife, Jessica Livingston, she's she's written a book, which is interviewing I think a dozen or so founders, and the book's called Founders at Work. And you know, given somebody who works for himself, I was like, okay, how do you, how do these people do stuff? How do they build large product service businesses? Yeah, which again has a link back to masters of scale. So that, that began two weeks ago, um, and then the last thing which I'm reading quite religiously now is um, it's it's a newsletter called the Ken, that's K E N. Yeah, uh, it's it's uh, so it's very much a one big article uh, a day on a different subject. Yeah, so it's been fun. Um, and, uh, and as you can see from all three of these things, you know, the books are typically read in the weekend, the listening typically happens on the bike. Yeah. Uh, the watching typically happens after our daughter has gone to bed, which during the summer vacations was not early. Um, so, uh, on a weeknight. So it's, it's been a very nice way of sort of breaking it up to unwind, uh, which is essential. That's great. Lots to share with listeners. Lots to share there. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on this week, Unmish. Thank you so much. There is so much for us to take away from that conversation. There is. Not at all. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation myself. And uh, well, thanks again for the opportunity. And hope that's useful for your listeners. If they want to get in touch with me, uh, as may be apparent by now, <laughs> uh, LinkedIn is perhaps the best way of getting in touch. Ping me and I'll ping you back within 12 hours. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to connecting with them. But thanks again for your time. Hope this was useful. Great. Thanks, Anmish. Thanks very much. Um, 
Well, Andrew, I do think I now see why you named Unmish a change architect. I think it's very fitting. Definitely got his finger on the pulse of the future, hasn't he? He has, and he's he's a lover of the number of three, isn't he? Definitely. He seems to answer everything in threes. <laughs> he does. He does. I like the way he frames everything round three, except for his concept of forming, storming, norming and performing, which is, of course, four. It's a bit of an anomaly there. Yeah. Oh, actually, <laughs> there you go. And also fascinating what he was saying about the explosion of gaming, right? across like with different companies that you wouldn't normally expect to see in that space and the fact that companies need to get with it they really need to get with it otherwise they're not going to survive yeah yeah well they could do worse than um get Unmish's help on uh, survival couldn't they he's definitely got his finger on the pulse absolutely and also the way that he runs his business you know this is a recurring theme now Susie you know, it's a it's a global team of experts and specialists, isn't it, that come together in a very kind of bespoke way to solve problems. That's true, yeah, which which makes the sort of idea of change architect even more suitable, doesn't it? Because he is he's, he's creating organisational structures to fit a particular client at a particular time without having a physical presence necessarily, which we're seeing a lot, you're right. And I think that his process is also really interesting, the way that he applies his timeline to everything thing it's very precise isn't it yeah exactly i'd like some pointers from him actually on on timelines because i along with everyone else who works in agencies you included it can be very very difficult to get a client to stick to a timeline you know shit happens doesn't it so maybe we need to take a leaf out of unmish's book on how he manages that And who do we have on next week then, Susie? Next week, Andrew, um, I'm really looking forward to talking to Hattie Trance, who works for an agency called uh, Digital Business Lab, and she's a social media expert. And we've all spent the last few months bloody glued to screens. Um, and I, I, I think she'll have some really interesting, practical ways um, for businesses and individuals to use social media to their benefit. So I think it's going to be a really good chat. That's right. And we know Hattie because she sits on our committee of the British Chamber of Singapore's Marketing and Communications Committee. She does, and she's a fairly new um, member, and it's really great to have her on board um, because she's, she's also a bit younger, if we're right to say, Andrew. A bit younger, and we've been looking for a bit of young blood on the committee, haven't we? You know, this year we do have younger members, and Hattie is one of them. And um, she also did an event that we hosted all about social media, which you can watch again on the Britcham website or on the Britcham Singapore YouTube channel. Now there's a plug. <laughs> so so I encourage you to go and have a watch of that again. Absolutely. It was a really great event, wasn't it? So definitely worth um, checking that out if you're interested in social media and everyone seems to be these days. So yeah, go and have a look at it. You've been listening to me, Andrew. And me, Susie, and our lovely guest. On What's Next, the podcast which asks just that. If you enjoyed listening, like, subscribe, leave a review. And do recommend us to anyone else that you think would find our ramblings interesting. You can find this podcast on all the major channels where you find your podcasts. So join us next week when we'll be asking someone else. What's, what's next? next?